through just anything you want to chase. Let's start here. I've got one comment and one question. Um, I like what you said about the Ten Commandments. I would add the Tenth Commandment on both issues. Yeah. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor the manservant, nor the maidservant. Uh-huh. In my mind, that there's something at the very least sexual, if not also property, especially in terms of manservant and maidservant, in terms of attractiveness there, uh, in terms of the covetousness. Okay. Um, you're talking about sort of illicit sexual coveting? Is that the... Yeah. yeah. Do, do not cover your neighbor's wife. I don't see what else it could be other than, at the very least, sexual. But right. Immediately followed by manservant and maidservant. Okay. Um, apply that also to, to transgender. Do not covet a manservant or a maidservant, even then, in, in the sense of the bodies that they have. Yeah. Um, so I think the Tenth Commandment applies with both. The question is really of a pastoral one. And my wife and I, a number of years back, ended up dealing with a transgender person in the church. Mm. Um, how do you view the need for repentance and salvation with a transgendered person that's been attending the church for a couple of years and is beginning to think about things like baptism and church membership, but obviously not a believer on the basis of how they're living? So... We're talking about a case of someone who, who claims to be transgender. They don't see that there's anything wrong with that, but they they are making a profession of faith or claiming to be a... Or, or at least wanting to be not really understanding salvation, but at least talking about being a part of the community of the church okay. through things like baptism and church membership. I, I think you take the same tack that you would with someone who is same-sex attracted who identified as, as gay... Um, I think you, I would say to them, look, we we love you. We are so glad that you're worshiping with us, that you're coming. We, we don't want you to leave. But you need to understand that as a church, this is how we understand sexual relationships and gender and so forth. Um, and uh, unless you're uh, willing to, to accept that, then this isn't going to be the church where you're going to flourish. Um, but I think that there, there has to be, it's not just a, you know, this is our opinion and other churches think differently, so go to another church that suits you, but rather this is a, I, I'm going to talk to them, I think, about, about creation ordinances, about God's design, because that's the foundational thing. People today don't have a, have a sense that God designed things to be a certain way. Unless they have that category of creation ordinance, they're never going to think straight about it. So maybe I'm just going to, take things back to, to you know, what, what's our view of where we came from, um, why God put us on this world, why, why he ordered things in a certain way, to give them some categories rather than, look, we're just a church that doesn't like gen- transgender people, so you're not going to be happy here. We don't want them to give, get that impression. How did you handle it? My wife and I basically came to the conclusion is that we have nothing but the gospel to give them. And our answer basically was to them in a in a gentle gospel confrontation. Um, unless you find your identity in Christ and not in, as this woman that you think you are, there's there's really not a, a, a spiritual future for you. Yeah, I think that was the right thing to say. And they, after regularly attending for church for three years, they never came back. Yeah, yeah. But I bet you're still praying for. Yeah. 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 I think guide guide them to repentance, one step at a time. What they need to embrace, and somewhere they're either gonna 
say, I'm not going there, or they're going to keep going. But I, I think we don't bend any rules or, or change. They don't have a separate protocol. They've got to come to that, that place. Yeah. And what we don't want to say is, yeah, become a Christian, and then we'll, deal, we'll sort all this out later. I mean, that's, that's just you know, right, right. deceptive. It's leading. Not not as prevalent now, but I can imagine as we go forward culturally, you know, cases like the one you opened with are only going to be more common. Yeah. In a situation like that where you have someone who has transitioned or is in the process or maybe they took puberty blockers or whatever, right. um, those are all different. You want to be pastorally sensitive, but how would you or what kind of resources would you recommend pastorally to think through things like, what do I do now? Do I yeah. transition back to my right. biological gender? Like, how do you think through that? It has to be dealt with on a case-by-case basis, exactly what has happened to the person. I think the rule of thumb is you try and undo everything that is reasonably possible to undo. There are some things you can't undo. The damage is done. You can't you know, reconstitute mutilated genitals. Um, but you can, as far as possible, go back to living, dressing, behaving in that way. Um, so do what you can to go to, to revert to, to what should be the way things are, as long as it doesn't do further harm. That's the constraint. Um, because I think asking people to pursue more reconstructive surgery, uh, particularly when it's already done damages, you know, I, I don't think that's, that we should be asking or requiring people to do that. Um, but whatever reasonable steps without doing f- further harm to bring them into line with God's intent for them. Uh, and the most important thing, I think, is to address their conscience because they are going to continually feel guilty because the scars will literally always be there to remind them. And so we've got to care for their soul first and foremost. Uh, two things. One, the person is real quick. Maybe it would sound a bit strange, but were you a former uh, user of Pros, Pros Apologia? <laughs> you mean the um, the IRC channel? Yeah. I was I was on there many, well, many years ago. I gave greetings from all the folks from there. What's that? I gave greetings from all the folks from there. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, we need to hear more about that. It's still on even today. I know. I know. And then, uh, <laughs> old, old school. Is, it, would it be right to think that uh, transhumanism is, in one sense, the end goal of all of this? Because if they're concerned about equality, what other way to have equality than to completely destroy yes. the idea of yeah. gender and all this stuff, which is found in transhumanism, whether right. it's in cybernetics or whatever else? Right. Yeah, the, the end goal is to, uh, to utterly destroy the idea of a human nature that is di- defined from outside of us. So postmodernism is, is the ideological attempt to do that. Transhumanism is the technological attempt to do that, to say that we can, we can make ourselves in our own image, we can transcend even our nature, or our nature is infinitely flexible. Now, transgender, uh, transhumanism itself is a, is a little bit of a fuzzy term. Some people would say, you know, if you, could, if you got an artificial limb, right, you know, a robotic limb, is that transhumanism? No, I don't, I don't think so, not, not in the way that it's as an ideological movement. But yeah, yeah, I think that's the end goal. Um, sexuality is one aspect of our, um, of our human, human nature, but the goal is, uh, it's, a, it's a sort of um, 
anthropological Tower of Babel, uh, wanting to ascend to heaven by our own means rather than accepting God's uh, uh, design for us. Um, I work in a hospital setting where you get a lot of the uh, LGBT community coming in, adults, kids, teenagers, um, and the hospital teaches us pretty much exactly what you were teaching from the secular perspective. Yeah. Be accepting, be encouraging them to pursue this lifestyle or to explore it. Um, as a Christian, how would you suggest living in this environment, yeah. the do's and the don'ts of what you know I have as an employee, yeah. telling her, an employer telling me what to do. Well, one important factor is what can you do in good conscience? If there are certain things that you as a Christian can't do in good conscience, I think you have to take them to your employer and see if they can make reasonable exceptions for you not to violate your conscience in those matters. I don't think we, the Christians are called to, to you know, like, like Samson, bring the system down from the inside by pushing away the pillars and just collapsing everything. Um, but I think what we can do is we can be a voice for alternatives. So just as someone, um, you know, maybe someone, a, a nurse who's working in uh, obstetrics and there's a woman who's considering uh, an abortion, the minimum you can do is say, you have other options. Don't, don't get a second opinion on this. Think through some of the alternatives. Rather than saying, don't do that, that's wrong, do this, um, I think maybe in a more a more fruitful and positive way is to say, I know you've been told this, but um, there, there are other ways to look at this. There are other approaches. Please consider those. Um, now, whether that would you know, violate the terms of your employment will depend on a case-by-case basis. Um, but for now, I think there are some legal protections for um, protecting religious consciences in such situations, but it can vary from place to place. Does that address it at all? Um, so I'm on a psychiatric unit. Okay, so, right. Um, where they are coming in for um, struggling with um, I'm gay, I'm lesbian, I'm still considering you know, going from a boy to a girl or I, I haven't right. made that transition with my parents to accept me and so as an employee I'm supposed to be as affirming and encouraging as I can. Yeah. Um, as a Christian I don't necessarily do that. I will side with the trying to help them along with their parents and be respectful, yes. you know, the yes. situation, but I'm not, as an individual, willing to make that, yeah. step over that line that the hospital wants me to do, right. encourages me to do. Yeah. Um, I don't tell them that, but, yeah. you know, it's just my own conscience. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think so we can say there. if you're called to be affirming, there's there's being compassionate, there's being sympathetic, there's that kind of affirming, but then there's the affirming of this is affirming a particular view of what's going on there and what needs to be done. I think that's that's a bridge too far, and I hope yeah. that you would not yeah, be no. required to to do that to violate your conscience in that way. But, um, one right. one yes. tool I think of is to ask questions. You can. Mm-hmm. You can control how you ask questions, and just I'm just asking questions. I mean, yep. you can be obnoxious yep. with it, but yes. but if you're asking questions, legitimately trying to understand, but you can also take questions to point a person to the logical conclusion, yep. and they may come themselves to say that's crazy. Yep. Some, it's just a, a possibility. Yep. Yep. There was a hand here. Uh, the two of you in the back just go one after another. Go ahead, um, Chad. You start. Sure. Okay. Um, I was going to ask, what are some ways, you mentioned toward the end there that we need to speak out against the push to undermine biblical um, sex, gender norms. 
Um, how, how do we do that while also maintaining, as you mentioned, a safe place for people to come to us yeah. um, with their struggles? Um, would they, you know, without telling them we don't really aren't a church for these kinds of people? Right, right. Um, What I'm not suggesting is that, that, that we as pastors need to be going out there, you know, and street preaching and, and, and or, you know, or just, just being, being obnoxious about it. What I simply mean is that when, when we are asked about these questions by unbelievers or when we have the opportunity to express a view, we don't back down, we don't um, uh, sort of water down our convictions on this. I'm not talking about you know, broadcasting this from the rooftops, this is what our church is all about, and so forth. Because that's not the core concern, that's not our core mission. Our core mission is to bring the gospel to people. But my point is simply that in this environment, the temptation is to keep your head down and hope it all blows over. And I'm saying we do need to do more than that. When the opportunity comes for us to give a testimony about the biblical teaching on these topics, we should take the opportunity to speak clearly and explicitly about it. But in terms of our, our churches, we're not going to advertise ourselves as a, as a church that has certain views on sexuality and gender. That's going to come out naturally in, in, in the preaching and teaching of the church. But if we're, if we're making the gospel front and center and defining sin, not just in terms of sexual sin, but, but every kind of sin, having a biblical view of sin, then we, shouldn't be, we won't be heard as being obsessed with this one issue, but rather recognizing that everybody is, is fallen in different ways. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what I can add to that, Dan. That's good. So, Dr. Anson, you, you mentioned to me that you have a young son, and I'm just trying to think of a practical situation. So he comes home playing with some kids down the block, and he tells you, hey, you know that girl down the street that's the same age as me that I thought was a girl, turns out it's a boy, and mm-hmm. And obviously you'd have a conversation with him about you know, how God made us and everything. Yeah. What, what would love look like for you as a family with that situation? Yeah. You, how, how would you help your son navigate how you play oh boy. yourself? Or do you play yourself? Or yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think I have to say my, my first calling is, to, is towards my family. I certainly have certain obligations to love my neighbors, but I am not called to love my neighbors in a way that compromises my love for my family. So I'm, going to, I'm not going to say, oh, well, let's just go along with it and, and, and so on, um, because I have to make sure that my own son, my own children are thinking clearly about this. I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to say, well, it depends on the specifics of the situation. And if, the age of the child, too. It does. It depends on the age of the child. It's, unli- it's very unlikely that that's going to happen to a child that younger. It's usually um, on the cusp of puberty that these issues start to arise. And then you can have more of a, a, a rational discussion and have a better understanding of the background issues. But if, the, if those parents are going to say, for example, well, we're, 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 uh, she used to be called Sue, now we're going to call her Sam, um, I would probably concede with the name change, if, if they want my children to call their child by a different name, I, I don't think that, that you're giving away the store by that. If we're talking about different pronouns, I'm going to draw a line on that, because pronouns are, in my view, intrinsically gendered, and to use wrong pronouns is just a violation of the Ninth Commandment. 
Um, whereas names are, to an extent, just arbitrary labels. You know, you know people can. There are there are non-gendered names, and it's, it's really a cultural convention how we use names. So I think that's the sort of compromise that I'm probably going to try and camp out on in order to keep the peace and keep the lines of communication open. Um, but I'm not going to say, well, this other family, they, they want us to speak about their child in this way, so if that's what they want, that's what we'll do. I, I think that's just going to set a bad example to my children, that uh, when you, in, in life, when someone wants you to do something, then you just go along with it. Um, but I'm going to say, well, let's talk about how, how can we best love them in this situation. Um, you know, it was brought up about worldview training. And so when we are facing, especially with uh, students that are being launched from high school into college and that whole transition, because the media and because of kind of those, some of those public areas, the other children, the other young adults speaking into their lives, this is such an overwhelming topic of biblical sexuality. Yeah. Because of all that pressure, is worldview training say, six months of worldview training at the church enough for <laughs> our young adults? And if it's not, what else can we do without going too far and putting a shingle up and saying we are that church that speaks out for biblical sexuality? Say that last thing again. I want to understand how, the question. How do we ensure we don't take it so far that it becomes a hobby horse? Right. Well, because one, sexuality is just one, one element of a biblical worldview. Obviously, <laughs> that's been our focus today, but if we're talking about the ethical implications of a biblical worldview, then there's a whole slew of, of issues that we want to cover. So we, do, we don't want to over-focus on that, um, because then, actually, we, it could backfire. It could be counterproductive. We'd give our children the impression that sexuality is more important than it really is, that it's, it's, it's what life is all about, if that's why we're talking about it all the time. Um, so we don't want to do that. But, yeah, six months of worldview training just on the cusp of college? No, I think you've got to start laying the foundations much earlier, and you want to have a, um, a long-term program at least, at least through high school, if not from middle school. Um, training children not only to, to understand what the Bible says about the world, about human nature and so forth, but also just getting them to uh, think critically and to, to expose them to non-Christian worldviews in a safe environment. I see it as a kind of a um, inoculation process. You know how inoculations work? They give you a little deactivated uh, bit of, of whatever it is that you're being, uh, you might catch. You know, some, some virus, they give you a deactivated version, put it in your bloodstream so you can form antibodies. That's sort of what we, we are doing. We're going to expose our children. To, Look, there are some people who think this way about the world. There are some people who think this way. When you, when you go to college, you're going to encounter these things. Don't hide that from them or, or sort of somehow say, we're going to give you so much Christian worldview that you'll just be protected against these things. Also, open their eyes in advance to what they're going to encounter uh, so that they have the tools to, to diagnose things, to understand what's going on, so they're not blindsided by it. That takes quite a bit of planning and patience. Yes. Um, I, when you were talking about the three worldviews, I appreciated you know, the contrast between the naturalist and postmodern, but also seeing how they're similar. Yeah. And I was I was thinking about that. Um, how is it that I don't know how you would, how you say this? Has postmodernism almost co-opted the the language? You know, maybe the 
intelligentsia or the, the medical field to be able to support yeah. the postmodern mindset with modernism. Yeah. And the overlap there is just, I don't know if you can comment on that or... Uh, yeah, you know, on the on the surface of it, naturalism, postmodernism seem like radically different worldviews. You know, one values objective truth, and other seems to throw that out. So you have a naturalist like Richard Dawkins, for example, who 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 hates postmodernism as much as we do. Um, but at a deeper level, uh, they are they are connected because I think postmodernism, what we're seeing now, is actually. A, uh, a consistent outworking of a naturalist worldview because once you deny God you not only deny objective values you deny objective truth as well okay if, if, if morality needs to be grounded in God then I, I believe truth knowledge and rationality do as well and postmodernism for all its mistakes gets that it understands that once you remove any absolute transcendent reference point then everything is up for grabs including truth including all norms, human nature, everything. So actually, postmodernism is the more consistent position, but in a sense, it's a reductio ad absurdum of naturalism and its rejection of God. Um, but it is infecting... Typically speaking, you have the sciences and the humanities. And the sciences, people in the sciences tend towards naturalism. People in the humanities, by and large, tend towards postmodernism. So all this um, gender theory, queer theory... That's all coming out of the humanities. The problem is that the political and cultural pressure is now starting to compromise people in the sciences as well. So now the sciences, because scientists are human beings and they don't they want to be bigots, they don't want to they want to be politically correct. Well, how can we come up with a science that fits what we're being told about sexual orientation, about gender identity? That's that's where the pressure is coming from. Toby, let's go back there, and then Jeff. And you talked about the idolatry of identity, and you mentioned two errors, and I didn't catch all the notes there. Okay, why don't I just errors. bring them back? Oh, no. <coughs> let's see if I can uh, go back here. Uh, I have to remind myself, you see. <laughs> okay, two related errors. The first... The first error, the idea that we should locate our identity in our gender or sexuality, primarily. What defines us is our gender or sexuality. But the deeper error is the idea that we ourselves get to define our identity, that it's up to us to define our identity. The error of human autonomy, rejecting the fact that it is God who defines who we are, ultimately. That was, that was the point. Okay. Jeff, go ahead. Uh, the topic of same-sex attraction in the church touched on it was helpful uh, to, to really try that sinful temptation coming from within and dealing with it as sin of course it's sin we have the gospel hope deal with sin or change and yet this whole this the horror of not being able to change the same sex attraction being unwanted yeah. a young believer they're 18 they see their friends engaging in relationships they get old yeah. And single and needing to do that. Yeah. And they look at me, can I change? Yeah. Is this going to go away? Can I have a family? I'm confused as a pastor of how to answer that. Having seen it as sin, I help hope in the gospel for change. Look, if you're a hater, we have, yes, it's not instantaneous change, but there's progressive sanctification yeah. that is promised in the gospel. Yeah. So, 
is there not progressive sanctification, same-sex attraction, promise in the gospel change? Yeah. And if not, you know, I gotta have some, I gotta have some theology reworking as to how, why I can't promise. Yeah. Certain things. I think we want to be aware of teaching, same to, uh, uh, implying that same-sex attraction is some sort of special case here. There's something unique yeah. about it. Um, because all of us have inclinations towards sin, right. and sometimes addressing those is a question of sanctification. But I'm very open to the fact that there are, there are genetic dispositions to all kinds of sins, to, to, to drug abuse, to alcoholism, to anger, you know, th these are, so suppose that I'm someone who, who is uh, inclined towards anger. There's definitely going to be a progressive sanctification that has to be talked about here, that, that God will, will um, uh, change me, um, conform me to the likeness of Christ. I should see progress. There should always be hope for progress, but what we don't have is the promise of complete resolution. Because it may be that part of my anger issue is due to uh, a, a physiological disposition. There might be underlying physiological causes that are part of it, and God, of course, can overcome those, but maybe that is just uh, something that, that part of my sanctification isn't overcoming them, but learning to live with them, learning to be content with a, a, a body and a mind that doesn't always behave the way I want it to. So sanctification isn't just about overcoming these things, it's about learning to be, to, to live with and be content with them. And again, we don't want to imply that this is something unique to the issue of same-sex attraction, but actually it's something that all of us ought to um, recognize at, at some level. And then, of course, there's the broader issue of loneliness, all, everything that goes along with the, the realization that I'm, I'm, I'm not, probably not going to have a, a, a spouse, I'm probably not going to have a family, the church really needs to step in. It, you, the church can't be a, a substitute spouse, but it can be a community that will help people cope with the, the in, inevitable struggle with, with loneliness and disappointment. And um, We have to go the extra mile, we really do, to invite these particular people with these struggles to become as it were, part of our extended families. Not just say you're part of the church, but actually we as a family are going to show special hospitality to you. We're going to treat you as if you're a member of our, our family. Um, and that's going to require sacrifice, but, but it's part of our witness. Have you thought, thought through those people hanging out together? I've heard yeah, so, so yeah, I mean, yeah. my feeling is if you've got a bunch of people, a bunch of men who are same-sex attracted, the last thing you want to do is put them in a group together so they're spending more time with each other. Because you know, it's just asking, it really is asking for, for, for trouble. Of course, it makes sense to have, I think churches can have support groups, but to say, you know, just, just people who struggle this, they're going to look after themselves. I mean, you, it's like gathering a, a, a keg of gunpowder and flicking a, a match into it. Um, and that, you know, it would be like uh, people who, who, who uh, struggle with, with uh, drug addiction or something, that you don't want a group that's just those people. They need something to, to, to balance out and dilute the group. Right, right. Dan, go ahead. Um, could you give some just like high-level uh, points if you're going to teach on, this, on these topics? 
at church, sort of in a public setting, not a private setting. Right. How would we, how would we go about it? And I'm also curious, the churches that are here, if you taught directly, like in a public setting, a, a Christian education hour, how did you, how did you handle it? What do you mean by handle it? Well, how did, I mean, how do you talk to any children about it? Yeah, that and just, you know, we, we want to speak about it, and that's yeah. kind of one of your recommendations, but yet, yeah. we don't want to speak about it. Yeah. We want to we hire an expert to speak about it. It's, it's just, it's a huge field and area, and yeah. so I don't know if you just have some pointers, like, don't do this, do this. Um... I think that, that different topics merit different forums. Uh, at the church where my family is worshiping right now, the pastor is preaching through 1 Corinthians. And uh, when it got to the sections on, on sexual immorality, he was pretty straightforward. I mean, it was a, it's a mixed congregation, but he's, he, he used careful language. But he, he said, we, we need to recognize this is how this applies to us today. Um, and I think that was very fitting, because of what it said was, we do need to talk about this, and there's nothing wrong. God's word addresses this, and, and this is what it says. When things get a little more delicate uh, and maybe not suitable for, for a mixed congregation, that's when I think the, the different groups of a church, different Sunday school classes, adult Sunday school, children's Sunday school, um, it may be even something that um, simply, simply recommending good literature on it uh, and encouraging people to, to read it uh, can be can be an important step in the right direction. I don't think we should be worried about the fact that we're not experts, though. There's always more to learn about every topic. I mean, I'm, in a sense, I'm not an expert on many of these topics, but any of us can learn enough to tell our people what they need to hear, to hear the basic information that they need to make right judgments about the world. I think we, we need to be wise in what we say. I, I appreciate the word, the caution, to speak appropriately, but I, I think we've also have to press this a bit. Our children are growing up in a world where they're going to get it everywhere around every corner right. on media, and I think we have to step into it further than we'd like. But let me share one point of the sweet providence of God. I talked one night um, and used the word sex about 25 times. I've had parents come up to me after and say, thank you. Yeah. you know, now I got all kinds of, but I did this one night and I, I use the word sex a lot because that was the topic of the conversation. It was a Sunday night and this mom came to me and she, she's teaching her daughter Latin and her little girl, and her little girl says, why does he keep using the number six <laughs> in Latin? <laughs> so God graciously just covered her ears. And all <laughs> you can't repeat that, but that, that great. I, I think sometimes we, we parents, adults, feel more awkward about this than our children do. Like when, when the pastor at, the, at our church was preaching on this, I was... You know, I could feel myself, you know, bracing. Oh, what's he going to say as he gets to this topic? My two teenage girls, not in the least bit phased by it. You know, they were like, that was a really good sound. That was really helpful. Great. Okay. So let's not, let's not worry about uh, the awkwardness of it. In the area of transgender, I was thinking about, would you recommend a couple of books that yeah. you're thinking about from a Christian perspective? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I go ahead. Yeah, okay. There's, if there's one book on this that I found really helpful, it, ju it just came out uh, earlier this year by J. Allen Branch. Branch, like branch of a tree. Allen Branch, the title is Affirming God's Image. Affirming God's Image. And it deals with really all the angles of the transgender issue, um, the, the medical issue, the cultural issues, the pastoral issues. And it's, it's, it's a sort of um, one-stop shop. It's not, it doesn't answer all the questions, but it's the most helpful thing I've found. Uh, there are other resources, but, but that's, that would be my number one recommendation now. Dr. Anderson, we're thankful for your time. Thank you for the investment that you've made in this group. Uh, we appreciate you for it. Thankful for just the way you present and the careful thought you've put into it and uh, the willingness to leave Charlotte, North Carolina to come to the hinterland here and, and share these ideas with us. I, I, I pray, we pray as a church, our hope is just to share the wealth and that we can run with these ideas and, and seek to, to minister redemptively. And this is part of it as we equip ourselves.